Support for Podcast by Night comes from Midnight Syndicate. To find out more about their gothic horror instrumental music, please visit MidnightSyndicate.com. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Podcast by Night. I am John Long. I'm Jennifer Wolf. And for this podcast, we're joined by another special guest. Why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, all. I'm Harry Fox. Harry Fox is one of our esteemed players with the Pillars of Salt LARP troupe, and uh, he's going to help us with a uh, player's eye view of tonight's topic. What is that topic? The topic is... The Camarilla, the ivory tower, the pillar that is of vampiric society. Or so they say. Or so they say. Right. All right. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about the Camarilla, Camarilla, Camarilla. It's going to be potato, potato here for the, for this whole, uh, this episode. <laughs> well, I, pre- I personally prefer the Spanish pronunciation with the, you know, double L equaling the, the Y sound there. I want to respect my Spanish-speaking brothers and sisters in the audience. <laughs> that's, that's always good. Respect is always good. Exactly. And respect is what the Camarilla is always about. You better be showing some respect or else they're going to be letting you know and thumping you really hard unless you show them show them the respect that they deserve. That's right. So with the Camarilla, it is it is the largest and perhaps the most influential of the vampire sects in the world of darkness and it's based on age-old tradition deeply entrenched with the respect as Jen said and held headed up by elders those pesky elders yeah the camaria is really as we said in the la- in our previous episode it's one of the oldest sects of vampires and because it is as old as it is and venerable as it is it really does see itself as the guiding hand of vampiric society even though they see themselves as being this group that oversees and shepherds all of vampiric kind, they're actually a group that's deeply fraught with infighting, bickering, feuding, duplicitousness. Basically, it's a, a, a nest of vipers. Power in the Camarilla is is taken and jealously guarded, and they won't. They don't like sharing it either outside of the sect or with each other. No, they don't. As we discussed that last episode, the Camarilla's roots were based in the conflicts that came out of the Inquisition hunting down vampires and the Anarchs revolting against the Elders. I guess they figured that they needed to circle the wagons if they were going to keep their way of life. Well, I mean, and when you have humans who are hunting you down left and right, and uh, you have these young neonates who are being all uppity and getting up in your business... And they're selling you out to the hunters and everything's going to hell in a handbasket. At some point, vampires have to just man up. I mean, a vampire isn't stupid. They recognize that there's safety in numbers. And the Camarilla was founded on this principle of 
look, we cannot survive the way that we have been going up to this point as like independence, you know, princes of cities. We need to work together and all mutually come together for our protection if we hope to survive. And so this, the Camarilla was built on this idea of a confederation of friends, if you were, hence why they're called the Camarilla, you know, friends. And it was designed that it's a quid pro quo kind of relationship. I scratch your back and you scratch mine. If I do a favor for you, you do a favor for me. And because we all are bound to each other by these favors, it creates this unity of status, boons owed, favors. It, it creates a complex web that unites everyone together for their mutual protection. But just like anything else in politics, that creates a very, very large power dynamic within a, a very small society of blood-sucking hunters. Yes, that it does. Harry, being a player, what it, what are your first thoughts about the Camarilla? Well, my favorite characters I've played so far have been in the Camarilla. It's one of those things of it's it, it's the best system we've come up with so far. It was particularly my last favorite character, Tony, his, his idea. It was better than the Sabbat, and it was better than being Anarch. He, he was loyal to it. Jennifer hit it on the head. It's a lot of dirty back back uh, alley deals, and the guy who's smiling at you and shaking your hand today is the guy who's burning down your house tomorrow and trying not to get caught in the process. Yeah, that sure sounds like a society of friends to me, quote unquote. Well, you know, it's friends like, you know, high school and like the Mean Girls analogy I used in a previous episode. Y'all laughed at me, but it's absolutely true because it's like, hey, you're my friend until suddenly you're no longer useful to me. And then I'm going to backstab you and ruin your reputation in school. I mean, this is the Camarilla. The analogy works. Fair enough. Okay, so this society, this this group, this sect was based on a series of laws and they were agreed upon and those laws are known as tradition. Yes. So the traditions are really kind of born out of basic laws that in ancient vampiric society, most people kind of had just to maintain the peace. And they were a common place enough across enough areas that when the Camarilla formed, they said, hey, can we agree to have a, a just a common set of rules that no matter what area you're in, no matter what city you're in, you know that this is the law and you know it walking in the door. So they agreed upon basically six basic guidelines that rule all of vampiric society. So wherever Kindred goes, whether they're in London or Paris or Washington, D.C., the law is the same from each of those cities. But the key point of these laws actually is that it's all designed around one particular law, and that is the masquerade. A premium is paid to protect vampiric society, to keep it absolutely secret. Hiding vampires and their true nature away from humans is the entire purpose of the Camarilla. So everything about the sect is centered on that law and that uh, imperative. I mean, it's even to the point that the Camarilla vampires began referring to themselves not as vampires, 
they start calling themselves as kindred. Kindred because, you know, we're all kin when it comes down to it, you know, brothers and sisters, but, uh, and we're all friends here, but more because that's a, you can drop kindred in polite society and no one's going to think twice about it. They may think you're a kooky cult, but they're not going to go, ah, vampire, burn it with fire. The camera's focus becomes trying to hide vampires from human society as much as possible. And so they create laws, they create the traditions, they create the this complex series of customs and this entire society specifically with an eye to hiding themselves from humanity. Right. And that's actually kind of interesting that they would want to hide from humanity because based on with the masquerade and everything that goes with it, the best place to hide is in the open. So like you said before about uh, London, if you go to any city in the world, there you are. So they actually gravitated towards the cities because A, it's an abundant food source that you can manage, and B, you, there's all sorts of nastiness that goes on in the shadows of a city already. There, you know, it's, it's easier to hide your dealings and typically in cities, there is a more, shall we say, sophisticated government in that operating already. So that means there's more to influence as well. Yes. So a city's got all the things a vampire could want. They, it has, like you said, a government. It has a large enough population they feed on. It has crime. It has a lot of things that vampires can use to their advantage. And the city is kind of the natural home of the vampire. You, not that you will find won't find vampires in less populated areas, but it's it's harder for them to hide there. In a city, a vampire goes unnoticed a lot of the time. Right now, Tony, uh, Tony, hey, <laughs> Harry. We were just talking about that. That uh, I, I called Harry Tony before, and it's kind of funny because that was the character that he was playing that I when I met him, and he was such an influential and nice guy. That the name kind of sticks. Well, see, that's only because you only met the nice side of Tony. I actually was very crucial in another character's demise because she had believed Tony's nice guy image. And when he was done with her, just like we were talking about a minute ago, I sold her down the river to her own people that she was trying to betray. Well, as a quick aside, Harry, all this talk about cities, that character Tony, he was a Nosferatu, correct? He was uh, living in the sewers, and yet a very influential architect, both in the human and the uh, vampires or the kindred society. So as a player, how would you say being a Nosferatu architect in a city uh, benefited you? Quite a bit. Um, <clears throat> the business was good. You know, you're in a city, somebody's building something. Something's being taken down, somebody's renovating. Um the difficult part, of course, was being Nosferatu. I had to have humans to run my, my my mortal side of the business. You know, they had to get used to the boss's kooky habit of only showing up after 8 o'clock at night most nights. You know, of course, on, on the, the kindred side of business, you know, walking at 8 o'clock in the morning or at night to, to start a job, and they're like, hey, you're here early. And all this talk about cities brings us to, as players most games that you will be experiencing 
will be uh, city-level games, uh, like our game is currently set in the city of Los Angeles. So therefore, we deal with everything that that entails in the county and city of L.A. And in that vampiric society, it is organized from the top down in a um, pecking order, shall we say, uh, starting with the top of the rung. And who is that, Jen? Well, before we get that far, you have to understand the Camarilla is actually born out of the old system before there was an anarch revolt. And those, that system was inherently feudalistic. So, I mean, because face it, this we're talking what? 14, 1500s? The Camarilla was in medieval Europe at the time. And who are the most important people in medieval Europe? It is the nobility. It is uh, in a city, usually it is a duke, it is a prince. So that's the same structure that the Camarilla inherited. It is, it is a f deeply feudalistic society that's built on the idea of you have one person who's in charge, they hold all the power, and then there are other people below them who are vying for that power and the status that comes with that power. So at the heart of it, status is actually what is really the driving force of politics in the Camarilla. And status is crucial. Where you rank in the pecking order of the feudal pyramid of any particular city in the Camarilla, has, it matters. I, if you're a neonate who has no status in the domain, you don't get to talk to that elder who has a whopping amount of status in the domain. You are beyond. Get away, peck. So at its heart, you have to think of the Camarilla almost in the, in medieval terms, or I think a better description is the um, Italian city-states of the Renaissance, like the Medici. You have uh, one person who's in charge, um, and everyone else kowtows to that person. And uh, because at the most fundamental level, the Camarilla is based on the city, Everything around the Camarilla thus can focus on that one person and their power as they try to manage everything that's going on in the population center. And as you said, John, as you were alluding to, that one person in the Camarilla has a title known as Prince. And Prince is a gender neutral term. Think of it in terms of Machiavelli, who is famous, of course, for writing The Prince. And in fact, that's a, if you're playing a Camarilla prince and you've not read that book, what is wrong with you? Go get that book. You go read that right now. You read it cover to cover, and then you come back to me and talk to me about being a Camarilla prince because that is the primer for what it means to be a prince in the Camarilla. Uh, is, there, is there an illustrated version? Like, did somebody make a graphic novel? I'm fairly certain there's probably a graphic novel version of it somewhere. Okay, so there's no excuse. There's no excuse. No. So, yeah, the prince is the head of a city. That is the person who controls everything in a particular domain. They are the absolute law. They are the absolute authority. They rule the city by what is called a praxis. Praxis in Latin doesn't really translate well into vampire and praxis, but, you know, it's basically when a, a a vampire declares praxis, they're saying, I'm the person in charge. 
I'm going to hold this city in my as my personal domain. I'm going to allow you people to live in it, and you must all abide by the Camarilla law when you're in my domain. And if you want to challenge that, you better be damn strong enough to go toe to toe with me. Because if you're the top dog, it's not just about physical power, although that does come into it, but you also have to have some political clout, some uh, favors owed you that can help cover your butt once it's done. Exactly. And the prince is, as I said, the title is prince. It's gender neutral, but they're also sometimes called the eldest. Um, but that's kind of a tricky term because a vampire who is a prince is not necessarily the oldest vampire or even the lowest generation vampire. They're just a vampire who is in charge, either because they took the power or they were put in power. But the eldest is kind of the, the recognized polite term that the Camarilla likes to use. And really it's, it's a legal aspect at that point. They, the prince is recognized by the other kindred in the city as the leader of the domain. They are granted the highest status in the domain, and they are granted all the authority in the domain. So it is their role to kind of keep kindred society um, in check. It is their role to defend the traditions, which are the laws of the Camarilla. It's their role to uh, ensure that everything's peaceful and nice and well-behaved in the city and that there isn't going to be any threat of hunters coming down. If the Sabbat are attacking, they're the ones who are helping to orchestrate it. You know, they do have responsibilities as a leader, but on the flip side, they're also kind of absolute monarchs. Their, their word is law unless you have someone more powerful than them to either you know, remove them from power or puppet them from behind from behind the throne. Right. And well, speaking of puppets, one person cannot do it alone. So they often create a court that helps them in that ruling of the domain. Yes. And these officers are often kindred who have personal political reasons for being in these positions. And they the prince will, if they're smart, this comes with, you know, being a good prince place them in those roles that will best benefit the domain and definitely the prince. These are everything about the Camarilla is politics. And so these are roles that are from domain to domain are fairly kind of standard roles, but they may not look the same in every domain. And some princes may combine roles and some princes may do the role slightly differently, but a lot of the times there's a heavy amount of politicking that goes into each of these roles because these roles are, are kind of close to the prince. The, the, this is the prince's officers. This is kind of their cabinet. These are the people who do the various jobs for the prince. And so if you want to get in good, if you want to have some good status in the, in the domain of whatever city you're in, the best way is either to, buy and jockey from one of these political positions or get somebody you want in those roles so that you can have influence on the prince and what's going on. One of the, the, the big things with the prince is that, you know, a prince is only one person. 
often they have a person who's very close to them who either serves as their right who serves as their right hand really that's what they do and that's called the seneschal and this is an officer appointed by the prince and they work on the prince's behalf um, usually doing specific court matters sometimes they act as the gateway between the court and the prince and sometimes they act as uh, the executioner of the prince's edicts so in a lot of ways I, I keep referring to this again and again but it's such a great pop cultural reference um, Game of Thrones the hand of the king the hand of the king is the seneschal that is the role of that particular uh, officer in a, in a king's court or in a prince's court right that's actually a really great example it's something that you know we could easily anyone can easily research and go oh okay i got it now yeah the scourge the scourge hey harry you know all about that harry does know about being a scourge scourge is another uh role in the court of uh, camaria prince and this is the scourge is the long arm of the prince's justice they are the kindred who's appointed by the prince to serve as the prince's executioner. The traditions are taken very seriously by the Camarilla, and we'll be discussing the traditions actually next episode because they're very complex. Uh, for only having six laws, the Camarilla has books and books and books of interpretations of six laws. And if you cross any one of those particular laws, a prince is well within their rights to say, you're dead now we got to take care of that. Now, a, a prince could, in theory, just go and kill a person outright. And there's been many a prince who has done that. I don't know anybody who ever played a prince who may have killed somebody in a horrific way. way. <laughs> Wait, what? You, you, you mean like burning them while they were staked in a coffin? That horrific, Jennifer? Maybe like just touching them and boiling like, them like a sausage from the inside out. But if you are wanting to get your hands dirty, then you get your to do it. Uh, this is particularly useful for a situation in which a a kindred has been declared um, a, a criminal, their life has been declared forfeit by the prince, but they're not physically there in front of the prince at a court. Um, often the scourge is the one who's sent to go do the dirty deed, and they will hunt them down until they get, the, get to them. Uh, we've discussed, uh, I believe, oh, we haven't discussed yet, but there is this concept called the blood hunt, Lex Talionis. That's the scourge's duty. It's you now have to go avenge the blood. You have to go and get that person's head. You're the one who's responsible for, for doing the deed. Tony, or I did it again. <laughs> Harry. Harry. Characters, not players, John. I know, I know. Separation of, you know, church and state. So, Harry, as the Scourge, as playing the Scourge, what are some insights that you might be able to um, throw at that role? Well, a couple things. First about the, the, the Scourge that I'd like to point out, that um, not every prince actually appoints a Scourge. Some sure. allow, the, allow the duties of the Scourge to fall upon the sheriff. Or, like Jennifer said, take, them, take those matters into their own hands. Um, a scourge is also kind of villainized to the rest of the court uh, in the respects that he is there to do the prince's you know, dirty work and to uphold the traditions as, she's, as the prince sees fit. Um, 
he's also a hunter of of illegal children or chilled thin bloods um anybody who comes into the city who does not ask for acknowledgement and acceptance into the city by you know pretty much the prince's permission to you know stay within the city um so that does get you some enemies get you a lot of fear especially if you're somebody who's doing something that might have me knocking on your door right and you do not want that let me tell you yeah uh my, my my current crusher skull crusher or my skirt my current character skull crusher who's the scourge of the city um he has successfully uh completed three blood hunts at this point show off hey two of those were hedged i'd already caught the guys that had them staked but still that that that's something else it's it's not it's it's a hard thing to role play you know it, it's it's very easy to sit there and go yes i i i have gone and killed a couple characters and you know, I'm doing my job as 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 a scourge, but you've got you know, for me at least, I I like to actually get into the mentality of what would drive somebody to do that. You know, what 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 effect does this killing have on somebody after a while? My character right now, he's this is kind of all he's ever known. He he's hunted Sabat, and he you know. Being the scourge for the city is gives him a great access to hunting down the Sabbat, um, and having to deal out the prince's justice on Camarilla. You know, he to kind of psych himself into it. He says they've broken the traditions; they're no better than the Sabbat. Wow, that's a great that's a great little bit of insight. Okay, so next we have as um, Harry, haha, has pointed out that uh, the scourge has their duties, but there's also the sheriff. Yes, the sheriff it is a very different role from the scourge. Uh, the scourge is an executioner. The sheriff is actually the person in charge of upholding the prince's law, often with force. So, the the scourge is only really they're only really responsible for killing people. The sheriff has to make sure you're following the law, and if you're not following the law, then they're going to put you in your place i'm gonna smack you around right definitely just think of the the old wild west sheriff you know the old 10 star coming to my town i'm gonna show you the ropes if you break any of the laws well you're gonna have to deal with me yeah a little police brutality you know smack you around you know oh i'm sorry you know you're crossing over into someone's domain that you're not supposed to. Well, I just slipped and punched you with potents. Damn. Accidents happen. Accidents do happen. Oh, well, here you are, my prince. I mean, yeah, that's what the sheriff is. The sheriff is the, the person enforcing the law. They are often kind of the brood squad. They're the prince's brood squad. They'll clean up the riffraff. They are in charge of... of guarding the borders and patrolling the borders because there are, is a prince controls a domain absolutely and they control who comes in and out and if you come into a domain and you don't have permission to be in that domain then the sheriff is the one who's going to be like uh, um, excuse me um, I do not see your name on the guest list and uh, you don't really have uh, the clearance to be here, so I think you need to come with me. Right. And speaking of clearances, we have the next one, which is the Keeper, keeper of Elysium. Yes. So the Keeper of Elysium 
is <laughs> it's one of the more tricky offices in a prince's court. So first of all, you have to understand the the concept of Alicia. Alicia in the for the Camarilla and for vampires in general, but the Camarilla in particular, it's this concept of a sacred neutral space. It's a uh, I, I liken it to the Highlander, where you know you couldn't fight on sa on uh, sacred ground. That's what this is: it is vampiric sacred grounds. It's a place where kindred are free to gather uh, without fear of reprisal or fear of being attacked. For a group of of predators, that's a big deal. You know, they don't trust each other by nature so the idea of i know i can go here and i'm not going to get jacked up and jumped by my enemies because they can't do it there that's that's something that's very uh that takes a lot of trust and and because of that kindred protect their alicia with with a just a, they protect it with a lot of sincerity it's uh they're very serious about it and so the keeper's entire job is to ensure that Alicia are well protected, that they're free of masquerade breaches. They because vampires go to Alicia because it's safe, and so you don't want anything there to tip off humans that there's supernaturals there. Um, all the while, the keeper is trying to get, maintain the sanctity of the Elysium. So you know they're trying to make sure that nobody's picking a fight no one's nobody is using their powers nobody's breaking up stuff i mean let's act like civilized vampires here everybody that's very important like you said with the predators and the the neutral ground how can you do the quid pro quo business of the night if you don't feel safe in doing it so the sheriff's very important the keeper's very important Exactly. These are all pieces that help keep a society of vampires together. Uh, by their nature, vampires are not prone to cooperating very well. And so the roles, each of the roles of these people from the prince down to the keeper is to ensure that there is a structure by which vampires can interact with each other without killing each other and still make it fair and equitable, <laughs> at least in their mind. I say fair and equitable because there's nothing fair or equitable about any relationship between vampires and the Camarilla. It's all about power struggles. But it it's very much trying to create a space where vampires can interact with each other for mutual protection and safety. Right. Well, speaking of the structure and powerful uh, political dealings, That'll bring us to the next topic in the this ladder is the primogen. Oh, which, the primogen. The primogen. Uh, well, uh, it's it's one of those necessary evils, evils because right? every clan ha needs to feel like they're represented. So in theory, they're representatives oh. of the clan. <laughs> representatives of the clans <laughs> to the prince. Spoken as a true former prince myself. <laughs> I'm like, oh, screw the primogen. They're a bunch of pains in my ass. Well, um, and speaking of a current primogen, they're very <laughs> important in making sure that their clan's voice is heard. Yeah, yeah, voice of the people, blah, blah. 
Um, <laughs> so the primogen are, in theory, the representatives of the clans who interact directly with the prince. Like we said, the prince is an absolute ruler, but that doesn't necessarily mean that their rule doesn't go uh, without some sort of theoretical check. They are called... The, the primogen serve as the leaders of their clan, the representatives, the mouthpieces of their clan, and they often consult with the prince on matters concerning the city at large. In some... In, the role of the primogen in any prince's court is really kind of up to the prince. In some cities, uh, the primogen are very powerful kindred, and they serve as a check to the prince's power. So a prince can't just go willy-nilly and do whatever they want because the primogen are going to call them out on that shit. In other cities, they're kind of the rubber stamp to whatever the prince wants. So the prince is like, hey guys, you know what sounds great? I think I need to have a throne made of entire solid gold. Doesn't that sound like a great plan? And the primogen are like, yeah, gold's so shiny. Let's do it. You know? If another city, the primogen could be like, you know, I think there's much better use of our, our wealth than making you a golden toilet, but whatever. You know, it, primogen work differently from city from domain to domain right hopefully hopefully any primogen worth their salt would be you know again it goes back to the how good is how good is the prince what kind of job are they doing and hopefully are the primogen do they have two brain cells to rub together to be able to tell the difference well it's more than how good is the prince it's how powerful is the prince because if you have a prince who's an elder of a lot of power and influence, they could be doing whatever they want and not giving two shits about the primogen. The primogen are just there as lip service. No, they can't take them all. I don't know. You haven't. Quarter Marcus Vital in Washington, D.C. was a prime example of that kind of court where you had a, a prince so powerful, the primogen couldn't even challenge him. But then you have other prin uh, you have other princedoms where the prince is nothing more but a figurehead for the primogen, who are the true power of the city, and the prince is just their talking mouthpiece. That doesn't sound so bad. Uh, you know, primogen, you're just all pain in my ass. That's all I'm saying. Well, you're not the prince anymore. <sighs> I know those were the days. One of the big pieces of power that the primogen have in any particular court however is they are not only they are they the leaders of their clan and the spokespeople for their clan they also are the ones who are in charge of choosing one of the most important officers in any city and this is not a prince prince officer this is a primogen officer and that is the harpy Right, the harpy being the keeper of the all the status and favors. They know who owes what to whom, and at what level of severity those favors might be. Exactly, the harpy is kind of the social gatekeeper of the entire court. And while that, first of all, yes, the name harpy sounds pretty. I've never liked that title name. I really never have. Because, it, it, you know, it sounds like you're a shrew. 
but you're not really well sometimes you could be i guess but really what you are is you are the keeper of all these all the information going around court who who's in who's out and what have they been up to who's got who has all the cool status to be able to do all the things who owes who favors hey did you hear that dirt about Tony? I heard that he was up to shenanigans, absolute shenanigans. And here he is, the scourge of the domain, and the prince gives him all this favor, and he's off there causing trouble, and the prince just keeps turning a blind eye to that business. That's what I've been saying. Tony was never scourge. I'm telling you, Skull Crusher is exactly, oh, oh, I mean. Uh, Skull Crusher. Sorry. Skull, sorry. My... Yeah. Get my characters mixed Skull up. Crusher does his job very effectively. Too effectively. I th I'm saying shenanigans. <laughs> so, I'm on that train. A harpy is a harpy has a very p powerful position in the court. They hold all the status of everyone. They know everything. They hear everything. And part of the way they they know that is through their little assistants they call talons you know harpy talons ha, ha the talons are like they're the other girls in that mean girl clique you know they're the ones who are going and getting the information and they're coming back and they're ch chattering with each other and they're whispering oh i heard like skull crusher was doing the shady shit over there Ooh, what do you think about that and then they spread it out in the court and they they're the ones who are getting all the information that's actually a very powerful position to hold because a person's reputation could rise and fall in a single night, depending on what that group of people is up to. Right. And because of that level of respect and trust that the harpy holds, if they say, you know, oh, you know, so-and-so, you're out of the cool kids club everybody sort of just goes along with it because they understand the, the position of Harpy. And they're like, yep, nope, if they say you're out, you're out. Well, because they don't want the Harpy doing to them what is happening to you. Well, that too. I mean, it is a, you know, double-edged sword that they wield very well. I mean, it's just like high school, you know, that one, that one group of kids, the cool kids who dictate like the positions everybody has in, in the high school society and you don't want to cross them because if they turn their side on you it might not be so good and speaking of not so good going beyond the city limits this is where it all gets kind of dirty hey, oh it gets very dirty so the it gets very dirty the camaria as we stated at the beginning is a, it's it, at its heart it's about the city but it's bigger than just a city it was founded at a time when you know everybody pretty much as far as they were concerned as far as the Camarilla was concerned everybody pretty much just lived in Europe let's ignore those people in you know Asia and Africa who have their own societies the center of the world is Europe so their society was created around the city-state that was in Europe in the late Middle Ages. And guess what? They expanded. As Europeans went and colonized and took over everybody else's homes, they brought the Camarilla with them. 
And so the Camarilla has grown from being just centralized in Europe to moving to North America and moving to South America and moving to briefly parts of Asia. Though that's for a, very, a lot of reasons, which we will not cover in this episode, that has not worked out as well for them. And everywhere they go, the Camarilla sets up these domains. Well, now we have a whole network of these domains that all work together. So how do you keep a sect together that is not just, you know, these five domains in somewhere in Western Europe? It's now this global entity. And so the Camarilla has built structures to help guide the sect at large, kind of unite all these various different princes together in a large organization. And right, the way and that's they... called the Illuminati. I mean... <laughs> yeah, that's called the Illuminati. And no, um, the way they do it is actually with a group called the Inner Circle. Oh, right, the Inner Circle. That's what I meant. Exactly. That's exactly what you meant. I know that's exactly. what you meant. Yes. So the Inner Circle is a group of elders. They call themselves the eldest of the eldest. And for all we know, they could be. We don't know what's really going on with this group. They are very old and very powerful uh, kindred. And they run the Camarilla. They're the people in charge. And they're playing their never-ending game of politics. They're very old. They're rarely ever seen in public. They have ridiculous amounts of power. Uh, ridiculous amounts of influence. They're shadowy figures that are mostly just whispered about in the Camarilla. I mean, people say they think that's, that this person might exist and they might be alive somewhere, but it, no one knows. You never see an, an, an inner circle member. You hear they gather every few years in Venice and have some sort of chit-chat, and then there's these big declarations made that come down from on high that say, we have a new direction. And then suddenly the Camarilla at large has a new direction. But no one, no one ever sees these people. Whenever you think about the inner circle and the eldest of the eldest, just keep in mind that whenever you hear the term, you know, and so it is written, you know, it's written in stone. They're the ones that wrote it in that stone. <laughs> they were there when that stone was still a mountain. Okay, so say you've got these inner circle guys and they're the eldest of the eldest, say that they're, you know, technically the princes of the universe. They have to have somebody. Go with that Highlander theme, John. Just I am. I am. That's what you know it. So they have to have a way to enforce their will. So that brings us to Justicars, the long arm of the law for the inner circle. Yes, Justicars are the vampires that the inner circle depends on to adjudicate the laws of the Camarilla on a global scale. So while a sheriff might handle that for a prince in an individual domain, a Justicar does that around the world. And they are the most powerfully visible leaders of the clans. They're not the leaders of the clans that like the inner circle. They're just the ones you see the most often and you hear about the most often. And there are, in fact, eight Justicars of the Camarilla at any one time because every every clan gets a Justicar, in theory. They serve a particular period of time, and every so often they'll, they'll circulate out. So, for example, 
uh, in Clambruja, Theo Bell, more recently than not, took over as Justicar for the clan after his sire uh, retired from the role. It wasn't that his sire died. It's just he said, you know what? Peace out. I'm done. So they put a new Justicar in. So Justicars do cycle in and out. And sometimes they'll come and they'll go uh, depending on the needs of the clan. But the Justicars are always kind of chosen by the clans to be the representatives on that global scale. And just like, say, a sheriff would have deputies, Justicars also have deputies called Archons. Archons! These are the minions of the Justicars. They're their agents that work out in the field. Justicars can choose Archons of any clan to work for them. Some Justicars like to work only with uh, kindred who are of their own clan. Other Justicars will pick any kindred as long as you are not an idiot and can do the job. It really kind of depends on your Justicar. Archons are, are like their deep field agents. They work at the Justicar's discretion. So this is particularly interesting in cases where you have a Justicar of one clan and an Archon of another, because that Archon is going to work at, the, at their Justicar's behest. They're not necessarily going to work at, for their clan interests. They're going to work for their Justicar's interest. And so... They really are like the deep cover agents. They do everything from go for work of a Justicar to, uh, you know, running, doing errands for them, running messages. Sometimes they work as uh, deep undercover agents and doing intelligence gathering for a Justicar. Sometimes they're, the Justicar has three or four or five things that are going on all at once, and they assign Archons to be like the program, the program coordinators for their different projects going on. So it depends really on the Justicar, how they utilize their Archons. Um, often they're, they're, they're the foot soldiers if a, a Justicar is leading a battle somewhere and they're fighting a fight. An Archon is often going to be their like lieutenants leading the charge and helping guide the troops. It, it, they fill a lot of different kind of roles. Right, and forgive me, this next one is how do you pronounce that jen survivor 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 that's something i have not, not i have not heard of uh, a survivor is an aide de camp to a powerful archon so just like an archon serves a justicar a survivor serves an archon like some archons they like i said some of them do some pretty big projects for a justicar and so sometimes they need an assistant so that's what a surveyor does. And they can be anyone who provides the Archon with uh, their skill set. Uh, they meet the needs of whatever that Archon needs to do their job for the Justicar. They're the guy in the chair. They're the guy in the chair. They are the Ned to Peter Parker. They're the guy in the chair. Uh, that That's what the surveyor is. You, you are the guy who's doing the computer, you're running the communications and computers during a major battle that an Archon is engaged in. A survivor can do that. Maybe you're just that research nerd who hangs out in the library and does the weird occult research for that Archon who's maybe fighting against other supernaturals in, in, somewhere in the world on behalf of a Justicar. That you basically are, you're not imbued with all the cool status that an archon has because you're just doing this one job but it's kind of 
a critical job and it can turn into some pretty powerful uh, cachet for you down the line if you play your cards right. Excellent. The guy in the chair always wants to be the uh, swinging hero. You know what? I have to say, if I, I Ned leads, he's got a he's got cool sitting there, pretty sweet as like Spider Man's like right hand bestie there. I mean, that's true. I mean, you could te- technically say that you're the one really saving the world. Yeah, you could say that. Yeah. Let's face it. In the Marvel universe, Ned obviously is saving the world, so he better not be dead in after Infinity Wars. It's all I'm saying. Spoilers. Well, you don't see him, so I don't feel that's that that's a spoiler. We don't know who else is dead in Infinity Wars, do we? Oh, brother, that's right, everybody. If you haven't seen it by now, just 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 forget it. Just go, go watch it. <laughs> just, just go deal with it. Go. You're gonna need therapy afterwards. I want to sue Marvel for emotional damage. Oh boy! All right, Mo- ruin it for you, for me. Ah, oh, damn it, Harry. See, I knew it. I knew it, Jen. It's okay. I've read the comic book, so I knew what was going to happen. There you go. The man that reads. I like it. (laughs) So, beyond the Marvel Universe, back to the... Back to the world of darkness. World of darkness. One of the key features of the Camarilla, if you haven't noticed, rank and status and who you know the Camarilla is very status oriented but it's also very boon oriented what do we mean by a boon harry you want to field that one sure uh boons are currency they are favors owed and favors owed to you i did you a solid i got you i got your 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 bacon out of the fire now you owe me a favor because i did it and that favor could be anything um there are levels of boons trivial which could be as simple as hey let me borrow your car for 20 minutes all the way up to life boons which are i'm your servant for the rest of existence um it all depends on how much how bad do you want it and how much can i get out of you to help you get it that's that's pretty good yeah i mean in in this society that is very boon oriented Currying favor is sort of the order of the day. It's it's how you gain power. And power is only held by a very specific few in the Camarilla. It, and that's on purpose. It's Power is not designed to be shared in the Camarilla. In order to get into the room where it happens, you you have to know someone. And you have to be friends with someone who can get you in there. So for the rank and file kindred, for the the neonates and the ancilla who aren't your core officers, who aren't the sheriffs and the keepers and the harpies and the primogen, you know, there isn't a ton of, of, of room for you for upward mobility. Either someone dies or you move, you manipulate a situation to have them removed. Uh, And that's, that's the game. That that's how the elders maintain control of the lower ranks. But it's also how you get to weed out who is and who is not useful. Exactly. It's almost like you're in an overglorified high school and it's filled with the popular kids who control everything. It's like going back to our Spider-Man analogy. It's like you're in a school with Flash and all the others who are like, they're the ones in control. And you're Peter Parker, who's not cool at all in anybody's eyes. Right. So with all the power residing with the prince, the rest of kindred society is left to 
spin and you know like like we said web, spin those webs to continue on with the spider-man analogy that's so useful <laughs> it high is, school and it? spider-man it's very useful yeah i mean they spin and they machinate and they find different ways to play power games so that they can get a little bit of power for themselves right and in this society uh, that power tends to be held with are we going with the generation here? The I see elder. It, it's a little complicated. It's partly generation. Uh -huh. It's partly age. And, and it's partly status. Because all those things kind of factor in together to determine how much respect a person gets. The Camarilla is skewed horribly towards elders. And so... You'll find in any Camarilla court, an elder is going to have the most power. And that could be elders in terms of generation, because uh, they're very potent vampires, or age. Often it's a combination of the two. Um, you do have a phenomenon in the Camarilla of these so-called elders who are not really elders. They're often younger vampires who have been able to be smart and wily enough and Machiavellian enough to get the same respect as a true elder and they're accorded that same respect, but they're not really elders in the truest sense of the word. That being said, anyone who's considered an elder in the Camarilla, they, most of the power resides in their hands. They are powerful creatures. Often the prince is one of them. The prince is usually one of the most powerful of them. And all the deference in the city in domain is paid to the elders because let's face it most of the time they're scary scary people anyway and then next we have the ancilla uh we've said i know we've mentioned this before that that's kind of the most versatile or mobile of the levels in kindred society ancilla sit in that kind of middle management area they're just old enough to have learned how to survive and they're just wily enough to be able to manage it but they don't quite have the power and influence of an elder so they're going to be found in any domain in those kind of mid-level positions they're going to be currying favor they're going to be playing the games that the elders are playing so they're most often they'll be the pawns that the the elders prefer to use for some of their more high level stuff and a lot of them are just kind of playing the long game. They're biding their time. They're trying to do what it takes to survive long enough and gather enough influence so that when the elders go into torpor or are killed off or for whatever reason, they're, they're no longer there, they're going to be the ones picking up the pieces. Right. So if the elders are the seniors and Sela are the juniors, then that makes the sophomores the neonates. Uh, yeah, neonates would be the sophomores of this high school analogy. <laughs> right. Yes. Let's. Yes. Please see me. Please pick me. Pick me. Ooh. 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 I can do it. I can do it. Me. 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 No, me. Really. Me. Me. I. 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 am old enough to do the stuff. Why? Look at me. Hey. Hey. Guys. Really? No. Me too. That. That's the neonates. They're the youngsters in the domain, and that means it's tough luck for you. Nobody. No respect for you. That's right. You are cannon fodder. You're expendable. You're pawns in the schemes between or with the Ancilla and the elders. You have no choice about this. Yeah, people are bossing you around. 
you are you basically have to either figure out how to get the power or avoid being crushed by the power. That's really the game of the neonates. Every so often you'll find a neonate though who they're really politically savvy and they can ascend pretty high on the totem pole for a neonate and much much higher than most any other neonate should. And uh, maybe maybe they will win at the game, or maybe there'll be a spectacular crash at the end of all of this, and they'll burn up. Right. And hey, it's hard to it's hard to ever tell with a neonate. That's that's very true. Harry, what uh, what level is Skullcrusher at? Skullcrusher is in fact a neonate. Hey, look at that! Some guy hey. that's useful and gets the job done. T- Tony was an Ancilla. And Skullcrusher is a neonate. Well, there you go, kids. That's a that's proof in the pudding. You too can be Scourge. Exactly. Hey, so, in, his, in his case, he's fast and he hits harder than a freight train. So it's just sort of a natural pairing. So I'm going to throw this out there. This is going to be a, a little bit of a conversation piece. All three of us have played in games where we played some sort of title holder in the game. We have played everything from neonates to Enzilla to elders. So perhaps like each of you should go, kind of share what did you find the most fun and the most challenging role to play in a Camarilla court from your experience? Oh, well, I would say the most challenging is definitely playing an elder who is a primogen because of the level of responsibility you hold in the court and the consequences should you fail. Okay. They're pretty rough, but the most fun has got to be a neonate because being expendable is kind of the same thing as not having anything to lose. Yeah. Fine, yeah, definitely. Uh, in terms of primogen, like expand on that for a little bit a little bit more for me. Like what are the consequences if you screw up? Well, the the first one is that you're you know, you're going to lose status. You're going, to, you're going to lose face in front of your own clan, let alone the entire court. So, you know, you you say that you are someone who worked their way up. They you know, they they did the slog and they they worked their way. I'm a primogen now. I represent my my clan in the domain. That's there's a you know a level of pride that comes along with that, and you know, pride goeth before destruction. So you can't have. You can't have hubris. Oh, you can have hubris. You can have lots of hubris. Well, sure, but if you don't have anything to back it up. And so the consequences can be, can you know, I mean, granted, on the good day, you're just demoted. You're just like, yep, nope, you're no longer primogen. Well, see, that's that's kind of like business and, and, and a professional career as it is. A neonate is, is like the mailroom clerk. Nobody expects anything of him, so he can mess up as often as he wants, just as long as he shows up. Uh, an elder or a primogen, you know, we're talking mid-level to upper management. You screw up, you better have somebody good dependent on. In other words, you're, you're taking a, a hard fall. Oh, good little thing to plug in there, Harry. It's a good analogy. It's a really good analogy. So how about you, Harry? Uh, what is, What was the role you liked the most and had the most fun with? And what was the role that you found most challenging? The reason I found I found roles challenging was was more because of my own lack of of knowledge uh-huh. in, in the canon. Tony was great. Tony was was Ancilla. He was mid level. He was trying to figure out where he was. Um, Silver tongue devil. 
he got a, he got very far on his word and his and you know just the politeness that he had towards everybody. Um, so he kind of played that bridging ground where he got along with the neonates, but the elders didn't go go oh God it's him again. Skullcrusher on the other hand, he's got status, but he's just a neonate, and so he's got he's got a balance out and, and play a very rough game of, I know you're an elder, but I've got position that says I have to give you an order. How can we work this out so you don't get pissed off and hold it against me for the next 300 years? Yeah. <laughs> That's not an easy role to play at all, or anything. Yeah, good luck with that. But at this point, Skullcrusher's like, forget it. I'm gonna die anyway, so I'm, I'm just gonna do my job and, let, and wait for the prince to complain. He's doing the pass the buck upwards. Hey, you got a problem with the way I'm doing the job? Go talk to her. You know, that's how I act in my job. You know, if you don't like how I'm doing my job, go talk to my boss. Complain to her. So, like, that's that's my philosophy in my work life. I think as I'm looking back on, like, the different roles I played, um, the most challenging by far was the prince. That was the hardest role I've ever had to play in my life. It was so hard that even when the game that, we just, that I was planning to take Praxis in... I think they had to get about two or three good shots of whiskey in me to just get me even keel. I was so nervous. I was just, I was a basket case. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Am I going to do this? Really? No? Ah! You know. Um, it never showed. Uh, well, no, because that, 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 that character, Daphne Victor, she would never let it show. But Jen about ready was, was about ready to fall apart. That was a hard roll. Because you are the person in charge, and all the spotlight's on you. And it's a hard balancing act, because if, if your prince is a player character, which I was, then you have to stay true to your character, but, not, but also maintain the balance of, of politics. And you have to play it very carefully so that you are keeping the peace... If you don't have the power to be the draconian prince like Marcus Vitel, then you have to you have to dance around a lot of stuff. And I mean, at any one given night, I would have like eight, nine, ten people coming at me like, "My prince, here is my drama. You must deal with this." And you know, there were a lot of nights where Daphne Pictures response was, "Can I just set fire to the city? Is that an option right now?" No damn it, why did I take this job? You know, it was, it was by far the hardest, hardest role I've had to play, ever had to play. And it's interesting because a lot of people are like, hey, I mean, I want to have my character vie for Prince. I'm like, think long and hard as a player before you ever take that job because it's not as much fun as you think it's going to be. It's hard. It's a lot of hard work. I had fun doing it. I don't regret the, ex the experience at all. But it was it was tough. Jen, you, you commented to me once how much you really enjoyed Tony and, and Daphne's just sitting on the pier talking together about kind of rushing off the city and just talking as two kindred, you know, trying to deal with this modern society above having to deal with all the princely stuff that she was dealing with all the time. Exactly, because... She couldn't just be a, a person. She was the prince. And she had to make the hard decisions all the time. Whether that hard decision was, do we now make common cause with our enemies because, oh my gosh, there's this bigger threat over here. Or 
this person just betrayed me. Do I kill them? And in what manner do I kill them? You know, it, th these were very hard decisions to make. So that's, I think, the hardest role I ever had to play. I think the, the role I had the most fun with, like John, was just being a neonate. Because the neonates, no one ever expects you to know anything. And you're usually up to the craziest shenanigans. You know, running around and doing your thing. And people are, are making you fetch and go and do things for them. And you don't know what you're doing three-fourths of the time. And then shit happens. And now you have to answer for it. Oh my God, am I going to die? You know, there's so much silly fun that can be had as, as just a neonate who has no idea what they're doing. They just don't. I think one of my favorite characters was a neonate. She was actually a pretender elder, but really she was a neonate of, and she was of Clan Tremere. And she was partnered with another Tremere. They were set on their very first like little mission, you know, Tremere mission to go to Washington, D.C., and the very first thing they did in the city was manage to accidentally drive their car off the Potomac, off into the Potomac, off the bridge, straight into the Potomac, and the sheriff shows up on the scene saying, so you're unacknowledged vampires in this domain, so you're both gonna owe me a life boon for allowing you to live, and that was after she had fished us out of the Potomac. So not only did we crash a car into the Potomac, then the sheriff had to pull us out and then say, you owe me a life boom for it because I could just kill you on the spot. Have a nice day. <laughs> you know? It was like, fuck. But that was so much fun. It was so much fun to just have those crazy hijinks. Yeah, I mean, there's give and take too. I mean, I have fun playing the prince. Don't get me wrong, but, you know, a lot less shenanigans when you're the prince. Lot less shenanigans. That's true. Yeah. A lot of eyes are on you. Exactly. Okay. So, as a player in this society, what is a kindred to do to survive in the society where power is held by the few and society, the, the boons are the coin of the realm? Well, one of the first things that you, as a kindred in a society like this, have to figure out is you have to figure out what you're good at. Who are you? Are you a smart person? Are you good at manipulating and spying? Do you have a knack for beating things up? What's your information gathering skills? Figure out what it is your character is good at, and then you market the shit out of that. That is your selling part. Make yourself useful. Oh, yeah. This next one is something I, I particularly like to go on. I Find a partner. If you, you know, make a friend. Yeah. It doesn't all have to be boons and blood. I mean, Partner it could just up. be, hey, you've got a goal. It goes along with my goal. Exactly. Find buddies. Find friends. You don't have to like them that much. They're just people who you can stand enough to work with them. Coteries. Coteries. You'll often find yourself in situations where you have no power, like none, and you're somebody's pawn. And if you're a pawn, it's useful if you bring along other pawns. And then you create a block of these pawns together. You get enough pawns together, they're going to have quite a bit of power. And that's where you get the coterie, which Harry just mentioned. And coteries can be whatever. They're, they're like blocks of 
people, they're groups of people who have common interests who are all working towards a common goal. So you could have a coterie who likes to investigate rare old books, or you can have a coterie of young neonates who want to group together and unionize against those elders <laughs> who are oppressing them. Yeah. You know, Pro union, revolt, resist. Join the resistance. But not the anarchs. The local neonate 531. <laughs> 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 I'm put. I'm writing that down. Local neonate five thirty-one. I, I think Skull Crusher's got a new motivation. <laughs> oh He's dear. Oh boy. Oh, welcome to L.A. So he's going to end up buried underneath uh, in, in the Coliseum, underneath one of the end zones. Hey, you know what? They're they're doing construction on the Dodger Stadium. Well, Dodger Stadium doesn't have an end zone. Jimmy Hoffa is. Yeah, I swear he's under the, one of the end zones at Old Giant Stadium, but you know. I thought it was Yankee Stadium. No, no, it was Giant Stadium. All right. Well, anyway. Um. So yeah, po- po- coteries are powerful tools that, especially for the neonates and Ancilla, it helps them work more effectively together as political units than as singular vampires because they don't have the status. But even elders like coteries, and often they'll create coteries around their weird esoteric topics they like to research or whatever. So it's it's a great way for vampires to come together and pool resources. So if you don't want to necessarily find a coterie, or even if you do find a coterie, you might still want to have someone who is a little bit more powerful than you who's going to be that person backing you up and so another great resource for you as a vampire moving in this society is find a patron this isn't just for godfather movies uh the patron client relationship is a very old relationship in society and vampires like it it's it's very old. It's a very old tradition amongst vampires. You'll have an older, more powerful vampire who is the patron to a younger, more eager, more up-and-coming vampire, and they create, and that creates a relationship and ties between the elders and the ancilla and neonates. Right. It's definitely a more business-oriented or business-minded version of partnering up, finding a partner. It's it's just in this regard, it becomes uh, like more like a contract. You can actually make a contract from the, you know, say an elder to a neonate. Our goals are aligned. You help me with this and I'll help you with this. Exactly. This is very, this is very great for those political up-and-comers, you know, who they... They know where their bread is buttered, and they're going to align themselves with people who are also powerful politically, and that kind of grants them access to powerful positions and gives them a little bit of social mobility. So, you know, you may be a neonate who normally can never, ever approach the prince on your own, but because you're friends with the seneschal and you you have the seneschal's back, the seneschal gets you in to talk with the prince. And also, uh, in you know, those are very nice, friendly, typically safe ways to navigate this society of friends. Uh, but now we're getting into a little bit more dangerous territory. Yeah. So if you want to just like kind of turn the the playing field sideways or upside down completely, you can just go into an old-fashioned conspiracy. Yeah. 
You know, the man on the grassy knoll, the third smoking gun. It It's a thing. It's a thing. It's been done before. It's dangerous. Yeah. But hey, when it's done right, it's effective. A conspiracy is, it's dangerous. You could get killed. But if it's successful, sometimes the rewards are way worth it. Absolutely. The fastest way to, you know, what does it say? That nature abhors a vacuum. The best way to get into a position is to create the opening yourself. Exactly. If you can maybe remove a political rival, then, oh, hey, look, suddenly we have an open position that uh, I could fill. This is convenient for anybody who is very interested in having a particular spot in power and there's somebody's ass filling it. You just have a conspiracy and remove them. Assassination. It's a thing. The Jessicar is a demon. We must defeat the demon. I don't know. Who in the world would ever go and kill their Jessicar? <laughs> what? Oh, they don't last long in this city. No, no, they do not. Jessicars are cods. They, they, they should just avoid L.A. That's right. It's the Wild West, I tell you. But it's not just Justicars. It could be anyone. It could be princes. It could be Primogen. I mean, conspiracy, it, it's a thing. Again, it's dangerous. There's no two ways about it. But it can be a lot of fun um, in terms of role playing. You can just go, if you go in it with the mindset of we are quite possibly going to die in this mission, um, just have fun with it. Just do it and have fun. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and hand in hand with conspiracy of is if you if you completely just want to shake up the field, there's always the the old coup d'état. That's right. You don't like how the power structure's you know going along. Just wait. Give it you know count to fifteen, and then bam, you can change it yourself. Just tear down that tower and build yourself one. Exactly. Wait fifteen minutes and overthrow that bitch. Yeah, you know, of course, with the elders, this is easier said than done. That's, it's not easy to overthrow an elder. But if you find someone who's strong, and chances are they'll back your play, and maybe a new regime can come into order that before anyone can say anything about it. That's right. Things can change that quickly. Yeah. So let's just say, I don't like the prince. I find the prince to be kind of a bully. Well, hey, you guys don't like the prince either? Maybe we could do something about that. I mean, princes died, don't they? Right, yeah, I see how that, that definitely goes hand in hand with the conspiracy. Yep, you know, it's been done before. There has been, been many a prince who's been violently or even secretively overthrown. And once that happens, they're removed and a new person's in power. There's nothing anybody can do about it. Obviously, the the old prince was too weak and ineffectual to keep their own power. Well, you know, you always need a new alpha if the other one gets sick and tired. Well, yeah, exactly. And the Camarilla is all about um, survival of the fittest. Absolutely. It's... Social Darwinism at its finest. That, that's a, that's a, a, again, I love the segues, Jen. We're, we're of a mind on this. Hey, hey, look, I can, I am good at creating the segues, not writing them. <laughs> that's right. So, yeah, so that's the Camarilla. That is, it's a complex social animal. It's cumbersome at times. It's, you know, a Byzantine society, labyrinthian connections between disparate kindred of the city operating night to night. It's a careful dance between powerful factions between one and another. 
And guess what? It's up to you. It's your game. This is your city. It's your sect. Yeah, it, you're the you're the kindred on the block. So it's up to you guys to figure out how you're going to survive in the Shark Tank, um, and how you're going to come out of it alive. And there, in a lot of ways, as players, this is up to you. I mean. There's going to be standard features in every Camarilla city. There's usually going to be a prince. There's well, there'll always be a prince. There's usually going to be primogen. There's usually going to be you know a keeper of Elysium. Uh, other than that, how power flows in and out and who's and how things go is up to you. You know, you could decide you don't like the prince and you overthrow them and put a new prince in charge, or you could decide that. You know what? We need to get rid of all the of all of our political enemies and just do a Godfather style, like wipe them all out in one mass hit while you're in the church type of situation. Go Cersei Lannister on people's asses. You can do that. It it's your game. Do whatever you want. Have fun. That's right. Yeah. As the as a player, it is up to you. A lot of this plot is not going to be handed to you. You're going to have to be observant, seek it out. Uh, that's where, you know, the, the idea of being useful, making those connections comes in so that, you know, sometimes, like Jin said, you know, if you want to overthrow the prince, that might not be your goal the first night. But after a while, you start to look around and think, hmm, I think somebody else could do a better job. Yep. So it, with that in mind, I mean, a few books that are kind of good for you to read if you want to just kind of get a broad overview of the Camarilla and how it operates. Guide to the Camarilla, great book. Great book. I highly recommend reading it. Kind of, yep, it's all in the title. Yeah, it tells you everything you need to know about the Camarilla and all the complex high school mean girls plot of it all. The Prince's Primer, if you can find it, it's kind of a, sometimes it's a hard book to find. Uh, Prince's Primer is really great if you are interested in, in high politics, particularly the the role of the prince. Uh, like I said, it's it's a toughie. So it's a great book just to kind of understand the high politics of Camarilla society, if that's where your interests lie. And then Archons and Templars, it, that kind of shows you a, a big, broad overview of the Camarilla um, and like beyond the city, how does how does the Camarilla work? And what you're an archon, what are you doing? Um, what are the challenges of running a sect that spans across a globe? So, um, and those are a few. There's more of there's more books out there. Believe me, I know that there's friends of ours who are listening and are like, what about that book? I'm like, well, you know what? If if you want to suggest a book, you can just shoot us a line. We're happy to see, listen to all your suggestions. So, so those are just some suggestions in, time, in terms of books to read. If you guys have any more suggestions for books that people should would be interested in along with these episodes, go ahead and put it on the Facebook page. Yeah. We would love to see your suggestions. I mean, this would be a great resource for anyone else to kind of go, hey, I would like to learn more about, you know, how do I do the printing thing? How do I print? <laughs> how do I print? But beyond just White Wolf, I don't know. What are some great resources that you guys can think of just out there in pop culture? This is the thing I like to do at the end of our episodes, like bring it back into pop culture. What are the things out there in the world that you've seen or you or you've watched that could be great reference points for anybody who's like i'm wanting to figure out how to do this camaria thing what's a great analogy for me 
like what are some of those pop culture things reference points that would be great for people to kind of go take a, a look at that before they walk into a Camarilla game? I'm thinking um, Count of Monte Cristo. I'm thinking the Three Musketeers. You know, these once again we're dealing with with the medieval court. Uh, a lot of backstabbing, a lot of political intrigue. Uh, those are a few of my favorites. Game of Thrones pops up. I, I mean, that one's just a really good one. But, I mean, I'm not joking about some of those high school movies. You know, Heathers, Mean Girls, oh, what else? Breakfast is... Club. Breakfast Club is a really great example of what a coder, how a coterie could form. Oh, absolutely. Those are great suggestions. Obviously, the you know Game of Thrones pops up. Uh, so any of those like 80s high school movies, great to kind of get your head wrapped around like how the Camarilla politic kind of feels a little bit. We were joking about Spider-Man, but you know it fits in those 80s high school movies. It's got that same vibe. Those are all great movies just to refer to to see like the cool kids and the not cool kids and where does power lie and how do rumors ruin a person's reputation those i mean it sounds dumb but when you think about it you're like oh hey that i see where they're, they're going with that but there's some other great movies that are amazing to just see how politics play out the godfather is a great one for to see how the dynamic between a patron and a client and how those kind of relationships work in a society and that's a great movie well it's just a great movie period but you know it's a great movie to show how that works and frankly i i can't stress it enough if you have not read machiavelli the prince even if you're just reading the cliff notes version that kind of shows you the mindset behind the camarilla and how this idea of the prince and that society works. You know, go read the Cliff Notes version. I'm not saying you have to go read it in its original Italian, but, you know, uh, go give it a, a glance through. Um, hit the highlights. Read the Wikipedia article, at least. Um, it, it That is a lot of the mindset behind what an, a, a the ideal prince to the Camarilla should be. So, um, and go check it out. Or if you just want to be lazy, you can go play uh, Assassin's Creed 2 because I think Machiavelli is a playable character in that game. So, or he's an NPC. No, he's an NPC in that game. So, all right. Well, that that wraps up this episode of the touch points of the Camarilla. Next time, we're going to do a deeper dive into the laws that govern the Camarilla, the traditions how to navigate what can often be dangerous and ambiguous codes that can entrap an unwary kindred in the game of politics. Or help them trip up other people. Right, because that's always fun. You know what? It's all about the conspiracies. You know, I'm digging that conspiracy thing. That that hook is good. That's a good one. That's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. So, <laughs> so till next time, when we get to be rules lawyers, hey, hey. Oh boy, I'm going to be asking all the questions for in that one because I'm I'm I know my strengths. I am not much of a rules lawyer. You know what? In the Camarilla, it's all about the loopholes. It's sort of like being Catholic or Jewish. Oi. And and it's all, I, so, I I've learned is it's also be, being louder and more uh, determined to make your point heard over others. So no. it's sort of like being a New Yorker. Yeah. 
doesn't matter whether you're right or wrong, just as long as you're willing to yell louder and make everybody listen to you. Well, on that note, <laughs> we will see you next time. My name is John Long. I'm Jennifer Wolf. And I thank you all for having me. I'm Harry Fox. Thank you all for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Peace out. Bye. Later. If you would like to reach us after our normal podcast hours, we can be reached on Facebook at Podcast by Night, on Twitter at By Night Podcast, or at our email at podcastbynight at gmail.com. 